Welcome to Save What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. Uh, this is our first episode of this podcast. I'm so excited to bring to you today my good friend, Abayuk Moore. Abayuk is an artist in Bristol Bay, Alaska. She's Yupik and raises her kids off-grid in a place that is more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. We try to do it justice in the wild. And Abayak appears in my film, uh, The Wild, as one of our luminaries talking about her life in Bristol Bay. Uh, I gotta tell you, you haven't lived until you've eaten a fish head with somebody. I've done that at uh, Abayak's home in Lekalegnagik. And uh, honestly, I, I've been so excited to get her on this show and I can't wait to share it with you today. Enjoy this episode, and if you like it, uh, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and come back next week. Tell your friends about it. Thanks so much. Well, hello, and where are you joining us from today? I am calling in from the Dillingham, Alaska Boat Harbor. That is awesome. I know exactly where you're calling from. Paint, paint a little picture for us, if you would. Yes, yeah, so I'm sitting here, and I am watching the icebergs kind of, looks like the tide is coming in right now. So the icebergs are flowing in towards the Nushigak and Wood River, and I see Nushigak Point across the way, and some ducks are flying over the iceberg-filled bay. A um, little flock of maybe 10 ducks there. And the bluffs are kind of this wintry blue and gray and brown in the distance towards Kanakanak. Um, yeah, it's a really cold nine-degree day here. It's like you're an artist or something, the way you describe these things. Um, and just so you all know, um, Bristol Bay is out of ways. Um, if you are looking at Anchorage, and here's a handy little thing. If you make a, like a gun shape with your hand and you turn it upside down, and this is like the shape of the state of Alaska, Anchorage is up here, and then Bristol Bay is clear down here. So it's 330 miles away from Anchorage. There's no roads in or out. You either fly in or you boat in, and so it's a very unique place. And uh, Abayas, you're right in the middle of it right now. That's pretty cool. Uh, and it's pretty cool, too, that we can actually, after trying a few times, have this conversation through the uh, miracle of modern science here. And, um, you know, I have so much I want to dig in with you, but first, I would just love to hear from you your story and how you came to love the things that mean so much to you. All right. Well, I grew up, it's so funny talking to you since we know each other, right? I'm like, let me pretend that I don't know Mark. <laughs> um, well, I grew up doing kind of the typical Bristol Bay childhood. We commercial fished. I thought it was normal for all children to have parents and grandparents that were in the commercial fishing industry. So by the time I got to college, when people would ask what my parents did for a living, and I'd say that my dad was a commercial fisherman, and they looked at me sort of puzzled, I'd be like, what? 
isn't that what you guys do here in Washington too? There's fish here, right? Like your dad's fish, right? And they're yeah, of like, course. no, what do you mean? Like with a rod and reel? Um, yes, we grow, grew up in that kind of setting where the commercial fishing boat was our means of income or livelihood from my dad. But I remember some of my greatest summers where we had taken the boat or this one summer in particular, my dad took the boat all the way up to Lake Aleknigik and we anchored out from one of these little bays and we vacationed there for a week. And some of his friends went up and anchored their boat. So it was like several families and we, we basically camped in the boat and then we're able to swim to the beach in the morning with our big inner tubes. And I mean, so the commercial fishing boat was like our central, the center of our lives, you know, for everything good, all the, um, transportation like it's so weird now that I've had some life experience and (laughs) looking back at how unique that was for us or is still for us to have these lengthy amount of times that we spend on these 32 foot drift fishing boats um that's cool so yeah high school all the way through um in Dillingham I would spend some summers when I was in elementary school in Twin Hills where my mom's family is from and I would go back and visit every now and then so we had kind of that very cultural, uh, Yupik lifestyle there where my grandparents were and my aunts and uncles were all fluent in Yupik. And it's hard to explain the things that I just thought were normal that took a while for me to have these epiphanies as an adult or young adult and suddenly have this slap in the face. Like the rest of the world doesn't harvest a moose every year people aren't constantly talking about what the tide is doing people don't look at the weather every single day or check out the forecasts um it so it was this very you don't appreciate what you have until you leave and so it took definitely going to college and trying to relate to other people and finding that it was a little bit difficult to find that common ground because we are so different here. It's like living in another little country. Um, And by the time Pebble kind of popped up in my later years for college, it just seemed evident. Like I was homesick. I was feeling like I didn't have very much purpose in the cities that I was in. Um, I bounced around from Seattle and the Washington area. And then I went into Missouri and went to Columbia, Missouri. And then I was finishing up in Fort Lewis and through the lectures and everything, I just felt like I didn't quite belong. And Pebble came and it just made me very territorial, I guess. And suddenly realize all of the great things that we had at home. And I was just getting into like, you know, um, that Colorado area is very adventure education oriented and lots of biking, hiking, uh, climbing. There's just very active people there. And it opened my eyes to what kind of possibilities do we have in Bristol Bay? And we have so much of this crazy opportunity for adventure. And I was just, I was pretty inspired by that active community to come home and revisit our communities in a, with a different mindset. Not so much, oh, I'm from this tiny little rural town and it sucks being home and everything's the same to this more expanded thought of, wow, we live in one of the most amazing places on the planet. This is so cool. And it gave me pride. And yeah, I came back with just like a new outlook on where I came from. I, there's so much I want to 
unpack there, but the um, I think it's going to dovetail nicely into the rest of the the questions here. But uh, I just wanted to also touch base on that sense of home, that sense of place. I certainly feel that in Alaska. Uh, you know, I I spent my college summers working up there with in Bristol Bay and um, right down the road from where you live and. Um, but recently here, even in Washington state, I've been seeing all of these incredible places that are nearby out in the mountains and on the river and that are this incredible sense of place and sense of home. And, um, it brings a lot of wellness and it brings a lot of, uh, sense of identity. So I, I totally jive with what you're saying. Um, and just to, to be clear for folks, um, you referred to pebble. We're going to get into that in a minute, but what uh, I think you're referring to is the proposed pebble mine, uh, which of course has been a large uh, bit of interest and news and controversy in Bristol Bay for uh, 20 years now or so. Um, so we're going to get into that. Um, this summer, you wrote an article in First Alaskans magazine. It, it was beautiful. Um, I was telling you earlier today, I, you're a really uh, beautiful writer and you made a very kind mention of our collaboration on uh, my film, The Wild, about the proposed pebble mine in Bristol Bay. And thank you for that. Um, I'm going to read just a little bit from your work that you wrote in this uh, article. And you said, what is that feeling when we step into clear view and see a vista so beautiful it seems unreal and out of this world? The thing is, it can't be quantified into a single feeling. The feeling is the abundance of feelings. To what extent would we go to make sure this abundance of feelings is preserved and shared with as many humans as possible for the betterment of life on Earth? In this case, in the wild, Mark is referring to roughly 27.5 million acres of feelings that make up the Bristol Bay region in Alaska. More specifically, the 12.5 million acres of feelings set aside for development by the Bureau of Land Management, known as the Bristol Bay Area Management Plan. Even more specifically, it's the 98,000 acres of feelings that have been proposed for development of the largest open pit gold and copper mine in the entire world, known globally as Pebble Mine. So some of you may have not heard about the Pebble, Pebble Mine. So uh, Abai, can you tell us about what it is and what it could potentially mean for Bristol Bay if this project was constructed there? Yeah, I'm definitely not a mining expert um, or anything like that, but from the public, from a, um, what would I call myself, from just a person who is living here, who is trying to take in and understand what this kind of technical project really is, it is potentially the largest open pit gold and copper mine in the entire world. And the reason why it is so scary is because if there were any sort of uh, dam breach, because it would have the largest, you know, along with being the largest open pit mine, it would also come with the largest dam that would be hold, holding back whatever amount of tailings. Um, and tailings is the toxic waste that they're using to extract the precious metals or whatever. Again, I'm not a specialist, so you could look, look up the technical info. But it's basically poison would be coming down our rivers if anything happened to that dam and that comes with poisoning all that lives within the water and that uses the water and for us that's just this incredible universe of beings including us 
from the fish, the moose, the plants, you know, we're trying to live in this kind of magical world here. And I'd say for, from the adult standpoint, we really need to take the accountability to live in, in these sort of emotional realms and bring that back into our daily practice for life. Cause it brings us to another place of compassion and, um, takes us off the paper also just like we're, we can't always live by the or like we can't some people will we shouldn't in my opinion we shouldn't be living by these standards on paper and on just what the entire what our government is built off of in building these economies that are so exact to whatever these words are and that's not real life. There's always needing, like we always need to compromise and we're always needing to adjust to whatever things that we didn't account for coming up. And this mine is exactly that. Like on paper, it looks like it's going to be a great, perfect project, but that's marketing. You know, that's, that's how businesses succeed. They have excellent marketing plans and they have that. Um, so you know, it risks a lot, including the spiritual realm uh, that we've just overlooked as the human population living in capitalism, in my opinionated opinion. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, we'll we'll link to uh, some technical specs and some uh, deep dives into what the project entails on the show notes on the on the um, podcast website. Um, but, you know, one of the things you touched on earlier is everything that's living in this system, including us. But, of course, Bristol Bay is particularly known for one creature um, besides humans, and that's wild salmon. Um, I, could, I could argue. I don't think people know about the humans that are here. <laughs> you might be right. That's, that's part of our, our journey and, and our... Um, our task is to uh, shed a light on this part of the world that, you know, like we opened up with today, you, you are way up in this place where there's literally icebergs coming by your car right now. And that's hard for most people to get their brains around. But I think everybody anywhere in America or anywhere in the world really can identify with place and identify with things that are sacred in that place. So you know, one of those things clearly is the, the wild salmon that return to Bristol Bay and have from time immemorial in the tens of millions every year, which is just, that's a big number. It's like you're saying on paper, that means one thing, but when you see it and you feel it and it, it you eat it and you take it into you, it's an entirely different thing. And so I'd love to talk to you for a little bit here about the sanctity of food um, and again, quote from your article, and you, you mentioned this, while we are locked down, contemplating our options and reevaluating what we can and can't live without, we see that food will always be the most valuable resource for the majority of people in the lower income brackets of America. How do we win this fight to save what we love? We do it by coming to terms with the destruction for which we are responsible and being accountable for the results of our thoughtlessness. We find unity in the ways we are all connected so we can understand what the world has to lose by recklessly developing the incredible 98,000 acres of feelings that are gained through experiencing Bristol Bay, 
We save what we love by sharing what we have and the trickling effect of gratitude and sustainable benefits that spread throughout the world by valuing life and food over money. So I put to you, how do you perceive the sanctity of food and a regenerative food source from where you sit? What would be the literal definition of sanctity? The sacredness. The sacredness. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, repeat that question. Sure. How do you perceive the sanctity or the sacredness of food and a regenerative food source, one that can make itself forever, from where you sit? I think from the global waste perspective and seeing how easy it is to throw a half of a sandwich away when you don't know where that food comes from and you don't understand the process that it took to actually get that bread to your table. It just, and the global crisis that we've been in because we are wasting so much food, you know, the thousands of acres of lands that we're destroying to make this overabundance of food just to waste it. And that's kind of what the culture of America has sort of come to. But here in Bristol Bay, because in we're so remote we have been able to keep intact a lot of these basic things that our ancestors there are these practices that our ancestors have had for thousands of years and because we can't easily and affordably get food to our grocery stores then it's necessity that we go out and continue practicing these ways of life and in doing that When we're going out, we're connecting spiritually with the land and we understand that there's so much more to it than just a plastic bag with things that we put in our mouths and spit out the other end. (laughs) Like there's just an entirely magnificent, you know, a universe within our universe, within our world. Like we're just living in a place that we don't have control over, that you have to think critically with, you have to adapt. You can't play the victim if suddenly you're down on your luck in the middle of nowhere and, you know, you step in a, a hole that covers your boot and you're just <laughs> needing to pull your boot out of the muck. All of those experiences seem like they're not related to the food, but by the time you're putting it in your mouth and you're processing it with your family, all of these memories and everything go to the gratitude and your willingness to not waste if you cook something and it doesn't turn out exactly right and you, you're the one with your own hands and your own family cut an entire quarter of a moose that was gifted to you, you know what kind of work goes into one, the airplane ride that that, you know, for me, the last several years, the way that I've gotten moose is one of the guiding outfits. Um, some of their guides don't always want all of their meat. And so they'll say, hey, uh, there's some stuff that is here for donations. And so I've gotten an entire quarter of moose. So I haven't gone out and hunted my own moose and done that, but I've gone to pick up an entire quarter. And so me and my two kids by ourselves are learning how to cut, you know, with the lines of the meat and take all of the meat off of the bones. And that's no small process. You know, it's hours and hours when you have right now, my kids are nine and six but we've been doing this since they were like four, four and six. And so they're helping me like cut little things in those precious moments, just make everything so much more tastier. Um, I was going to say, I, I love some of those precious moments that you, you uh, generously share with us on, on your Instagram. Uh, it, it's remarkable seeing those kids do these things that, uh, you know, have typically been reserved for 
adults and not most of us have even done that. So it's really cool to see. Well, and it's been really fun. So for food waste, like, of course, leftovers in our culture, as far as like the United States states in general, people aren't always so stoked on leftovers. But for me, it isn't so much like that entitlement of do I have the choice? We don't have the choice to feel entitled that we're going to throw away our leftovers from yesterday. So we bring it in and I try to use stories with the kids or this sort of magical land and realm because they're in that sweet age where it's like, oh, can you believe that this moose was walking through like whatever the walking down the Nushagak River or this was way up in Fifth Lake or um, like what a what an ex what a journey this moose has been on before it came to our plates. And now we're putting it to our mouths, you know, so combating and having that mental toughness to realize when we're feeling entitled and what the right thing to do is even in our daily life with things as simple as the foods that we're eating. That is, uh, something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, and, uh, Venka and I, my wife and I have been watching this show alone on, uh, of course on Netflix while we're all coveting out here, but basically they plop, 10 people in a uh, wilderness setting and they've got to find food and fire and make themselves, you know, the last person standing wins type of scenario. And um, it's, it's of course, you know, wonderfully addictive, but it also makes you really keenly aware through these folks documenting themselves about what it takes to actually put energy into your body, calories into your body. Like, and, um, these things that we take for granted that just like you say, appear wrapped in a wrapper somehow, you know, um, there's a process that brought that ham sandwich onto your desk and the, you know, whether it's the, the farmers, uh, milling the wheat to make the bread or the, um, the ranchers, you know, uh, raising the, the animals and then shipping it off to market. I mean, if you were to give somebody from the lower 48, a little perspective on that from your place where you are now. Um, how can you help us get our brains around again, that sanctity or that, you know, sacredness of food um, when it seems so easy to get? Uh, you know, I'm reading this, I'm reading that book, um, audio booking it can't hurt me by David. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't, but I'm certainly curious. He's like a Navy SEAL. And so it's about mental toughness. And I've related to a lot of it through my own upbringing. Because when you're living in rural Alaska, there are just like these very tough things. Life is just hard emotionally. Like we're coming straight out of colonialism. We're still in it. And so the, you know, the abuses that have been done to our people, our grandparents, those things have still are still too soon in our history to really talk about openly all the time. So my grandparents, I don't know a ton about their childhoods just because they were so tra traumatized in some sense that they weren't able to just openly talk about everything. And things are coming out like my kids will probably know more about their great grandparents than I knew about my grandparents because it needs those generations to put the buffer between that craziness. And so with the mental toughness, it goes to these, these practices. Like we need um, one of the concepts that he kind of has in there is he's talking about callousing our minds. 
And sometimes it seems a little bit harsh, but I found that I have just gone through life and so many things. I've been able to find the positive twist in a lot of scenarios because you have to just know it is what it is. Like that is hard and that is raw and that is very uncomfortable, but that is what it is. So let's move on. And with practicing stuff as simple as uh, not wasting food, that there's like self-revelation that you need to find in there to take accountability. Like, is it okay? Is it really okay for me to waste this food? Is it okay for me to be picky? Those are things that are, they're more internal. Um, And I don't know how to like fully get it across or to even inspire people to want to not waste to want to use everything that they have, but to realize that everything that we're doing in this day and age, because we have allowed so many of us to survive, impacts things in such great ways, because it's not just one. Like I just, I like to think of myself as I'm one person and I'm not something special. There are so many people that are like me living similar, similarly. And so when I buy a bottled drink from the grocery store, times that by what? How many people do we have on earth now? It's insane. Seven and a half billion. <laughs> so then seven and a half billion free, and maybe not everyone is doing that. So let's cut that in half, 350 billion. Like, I don't know what the true statistics would be, but to amplify it in that way in your own mind, like this isn't just one bottle that we're wasting. This is so much more. Yeah, I like that. And in in terms of the mass of the volume, and then also, you know, going back to like what what it takes to uh, actually bring this food from where it came from into your mouth onto your table. Like the example you used with uh, your kids is, you know, physically cutting the meat off that moose and understanding what it had eaten, what river system it had come from. Um, the work that goes into that, you're really eloquent about talking about the work. Like we have chef friends and restaurateurs here who are, you know, really struggling. There's a lot of folks struggling during COVID right now. And it is just, you know, especially being now in a, in a business where we're selling salmon and bringing it to market, it takes a ton. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of people. And so to your point of thinking about this food waste idea, it it's just um, it's almost unthinkable, you know, to waste that food and all of that energy and all those humans uh, that that and and care it took to bring it to your plate. Not to mention the sacred life of the animal or the plant itself that is what you're consuming. So, um, well, and the amount of land it takes to make all of this food, whether it looks like it's something that came from the land or not it has still taken like this considerable amount of land to make. Like in the land is something that we just kind of objectify into this thing that doesn't really matter. It's just the things that we could see that are moving. But basically like we need to remember those small basic things that this land is what's feeding these things that are coming to us, to our plates. And if that land isn't healthy, then we sure as hell ain't going to be. I'm with you. Um, and it's a great segue, I think, into the next topic I wanted to get into with you, which is the evolution of your art. Um, we have links to your work in the show notes for the podcast here. Um, do yourself a treat and check out a work. It's amazing. Um, I, I don't know what I'm more struck with, the human and the um, personal um, 
constructs that you create or the landscapes. Um, I was first come, I came to be aware of your art um, coming to Dillingham and seeing it on the walls of buildings um, on the exterior walls of buildings in, in town. And I was immediately struck with this really potent sense of place and belonging and authenticity and it's gorgeous and it made me feel like I was home and alive and energized and your palette is bright and gorgeous. Um, but the piece that really brought it all together for me was our agreement, which um, we'll talk in more depth about in just a minute. But what, what has the evolution of your work been like and what is turning on the lights for you creatively right now? What's really sparking your imagination? Well, I'd say originally, like what got me, what got my career launched into the possibility of being a successful artist was definitely my inspiration to love where I came from and to kind of depict local imagery of the stuff that we were trying to protect. So I was in college and was absolutely inspired with the deepest homesickness I have ever had by hearing about what was happening with Pebble. And so in my last um, art class, <laughs> my, instru my instructor was kind enough to let me sort of, <laughs> well, my logic behind it all was, I don't want to go to class every day and paint fruits and vegetables when I am able to paint images that I come up with myself and sell them. You're wasting my time. <laughs> And, <laughs> Why does this not surprise me? <laughs> <laughs> and I was in a rush. I needed to get out of college. Like I just needed something out. And I was, I was, I'm always, uh, that entrepreneur in me just kind of likes that part of it. Like feeling mm -hmm. the extra fulfillment one by doing something that I want and then being able to make income and get by, uh, with that. So anyway, so I painted one of my first prints or the first images that kind of got me out there into recognition, which was spawning grounds. And it was a landscape with a beautiful sunset in the back and a creek and red salmon just swimming up and you could see the splash marks of the water. Mm. And that golden kind of hour, you know, when the sun is going down and the greens are just really bright green in the summer. Um, so that, that was the start, like all of my inspiration for the salmon through the possibility of it all disappearing with the threat of pebble mine. And then um, it evolving to once I moved home, kind of seeing that there was artwork being used by other phenomenal artists, but they weren't necessarily from Bristol Bay and they weren't exuding that power that I felt, the inspiration that I felt from having an entire lifetime of experiences here. They weren't depicting the people in the way that I felt true to who our people are. And it still felt too objectified, like our people were just some tribe around, you know, wandering around Bristol Bay. And it was like, no, our people and our customs and our way of being is, we're not the who we were a hundred years ago. So just focusing on that um, wasn't depicting what was really at risk, you know, romanticizing our culture into a hundred years back when here we are living culture in this day to day as people who can relate to everyone else, sharing photos on social media and finding these ways to connect. Um, and I got support through that because I was a local artist who 
wanted to show local imagery. And there weren't a lot of people at the time who were doing that. And I really honed in on that, that I wanted to, I went to the Fort Lewis business school. So my major was in art business. So I was lucky enough to go through some of the marketing and kind of get that mentality of, well, how do you capture an audience? You have to sort of stick to one thing. You can't be bouncing around everywhere. And I said, well, where is my one thing? What is, what is it that I'm trying to do as an artist? And I just wanted to share the best parts of who we are. And that was, that has been sort of my mantra throughout, just like, what is the best parts of who we are? We don't always need to show our struggle because there's so much that the mainstream world is missing. And then I go into having or starting a family and it evolved into something else where it was, whoa, I'm bringing one. I know about the destruction of the planet, which is scary. Humans are awful. We're just tearing this up. And now I'm going to bring a new human in to tear more stuff up. Like, what am I doing? And it just was a flood of emotions and just like, well, how can I raise a good human? How can I start doing my part as a native person and passing on values to someone from the very start to her adulthood? What am I going to do? So you start implementing these different things and then the inspirations come in so differently once you're caring for another being because that is like a whole other you know mental challenge for this that phase in our lives when we become responsible for other people um so a lot more maybe maternal images came up through that and a lot more family images from the perspective of more what as an adult what are you seeing in these situations of subsistence and experiencing subsistence, what is that feel? And one of the greatest prides that you could take is when you see kids enjoying themselves, when there's families that are just like relishing the adrenaline rush of being in the unexpected because you really cannot control everything is there. Yeah, you have a basic idea. The sun is out, the wind is going 10 miles an hour, tide is coming in. But you can't anticipate like if your rope snaps and then what kind of things are you going to be doing? Or if you were expecting 20 fish and end up with a hundred, you know, like that overwhelm. And then it's just the needing to stay calm and make it a positive environment for your children and to the kids excitement, because it almost seems like no matter what happens, even if it's kind of a scary situation, kids are just gener- generally usually excited, even in the face of danger. They're just like, wow. <laughs> and then you have to control yourself because like you don't want to traumatize them by hollering at them too much by like, this is dangerous and crazy. It's just like, whoa. All right, guys, step back and to show your, you know, your best leadership skills that you are um, capable of showing and exhibiting in the face of uh, struggle and the unexpected and whatever. So my new work has kind of evolved into more of a general, not just what is going on with Pebble Mine exclusively and what that is going to do to our regional people, but um, so more into like social justice, like who are we as native people globally? Who, what are our likenesses with the other indigenous people that are around our world? And how do we come together to sort of, um, to share our love and our glory and like values in a modern context to inspire others to not just go along with, you know, being this whitewashed 
group of humans on the planet that the diversity just there's like the nice things that we've learned with the pebble stuff with um the environment diversity is the key to a successful ecosystem right and that includes us like we are animals and like just like the we need moose and salmon and wolves and bugs all to make like this little ecosystem healthy but we also need like the different kinds of animals that are within that right so like um yeah we need yupik people we need navajo people we need white people we need you know people from all over the world and all different races and cultures like the more diverse we are the more vibrant and amazing we could like be to make the world something that is not so traumatic I am hearing this sense of unity through, throughout um, when you're speaking about this, and it, it is a very uh, zeitgeisty topic these days uh, of unity, and I think that there's a deep craving for it. I also have, in, in, uh, I have also seen in the writing that you've done and listened to you speaking about all of us taking responsibility. And, um, in the recovery world, uh, we like to say, you know, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. And, um, I think that that is a really, um, I think that's a really intelligent way of looking at things. I think it's an empathetic way of looking at things. I think it's a realistic way of looking at things that we all have a stake in this and it doesn't cast aspersions and and blame and responsibility over there with some other group it it then brings it home to me where i'm sitting right now kind of like locally with food or locally with politics or locally with the pebble mine or locally with um whatever it is down the street if it's a fracking outfit that's moving in on a family farmland you know you don't it 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 brings it into sharper focus and it makes it more real when it becomes your own thing at home. And, um, and it also doesn't just, again, like put the onus on somebody else over there. It, um, it makes me as an individual have to take a look at, at what my role is in the world, how we've got here and where do we go from here? Um, speaking of, uh, addiction and recovery, um, you and I both intimately know stories of addiction. I do certainly as, uh, as a person, uh, who is in recovery myself. And, um, I know you've experienced it in your life too. Um, in, in the wild, in the movie, uh, in our, you know, the documentary that you're in and, and I did it back in 2019, we try, we try to draw the metaphor of addiction to what is at stake in Bristol Bay. Do you think that, metaphor helps paint that picture and if it does um where what do you say is the the next step forward in a recovery for ourselves and for bristol bay i've definitely my part in the um addiction is more from like the tough tough love side i guess where i haven't been the addict but i've had very personal people close people struggle and i haven't ever been able to like fully understand that because i've sort of I've become very hardened, I guess, against that kind of behavior. 
because I experienced it from such a very young age. And so seeing that it was hurtful and being a really sensitive child um, and not wanting to ever feel that or see that or make other people feel what I was feeling. And so through, through that, it has made me very disciplined where maybe I thrive more in, um, in hard situations because of it. Like if there's something difficult, I see that as like an opportunity to outdo my mind and to get above it, to avoid whatever the temptation is or whatever the struggle is. And the temptation is usually always like kind of that victim mentality of why is this happening to me or, um, some level of that where I see like, well, this is happening, but it doesn't need to happen to me. <laughs> and it is, has been a very inspirational thing. And I like that challenge. So as far as addiction goes in our consumerism, the addiction to consumerism and needing to open these minds because we need to create more stuff for the consuming world. For me, it is another challenge. What can I live without? I am happy to live without so much if it means that we're not going to destroy this, this land, these waters and these people. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to support something that is going to cause more pain to an entire group of people that are living here who have successfully found purpose in life. And, you know, I'm also, <laughs> I'm also a single person exploring the online dating world during COVID and a reoccurring topic that has kind of come up when I've had conversations with men is that they appreciate my sense of purpose and that they have not had that opportunity, you know, um, maybe like men being from just the Midwest would be one recent example, like in Missouri. And they're just like, oh, well, there's like lots of religion and farming and whatever. And you're just kind of in this life and you're going through, but you don't necessarily have this deep, meaningful purpose that you could actually change the world. And here in Bristol Bay, we definitely have that feeling, you know, our fish are going everywhere. We have the largest wild salmon run in the entire world. And that's, um, that's something that's, just I don't know like a you can't even comprehend how special it is unless you take time to think on it it's so easy to say things but to not realize what you're saying yeah and you know I think one of the um, main tenets in the metaphor the comparison to addiction and, and where we are with Bristol Bay and where we are on the planet you know in in our relationship with consuming things, resources, energy, food, as you're saying, you know, as a, a person in recovery and knowing this story all too well, it's this age old, uh, you know, saying that we say to ourselves at this time, this time it'll be different. And with a place like Bristol Bay, that is the last fully intact wild salmon system on the planet. I don't think we have that luxury. And so, yeah, I mean, we all use these things, right? And uh, you're using them to talk to folks around the country. I'm using it right now to talk to you that it's used on commercial fishing boats, but up in Bristol Bay to harvest the salmon that we all enjoy and, and need and to sustain ourselves with. But to, you know, 
what you were saying earlier, like how much do we need? And uh, do I need another one of these phones every year? Do I need everybody in our family to have, you know, all the latest and greatest of this? Can we explore recycling copper, which is the most malleable metal there is? It retains its properties better than any other metal. We haven't really fully gone down that path. And there is a supply of copper on this planet and that um, doesn't need to be extracted from the headwaters of the most vibrant salmon run uh, that we know of. Um, so it's asking these questions, like you're saying, and ultimately coming down to, you know, can we afford to say this time it'll be different one more time with a place like Bristol Bay? Yeah, and I think that with it's like taking the path of least resistance, right? The easiest thing for a capitalist country to do is to jump forward in these in these plans and these operations because that's what we do. We're a capitalist society. We generate income. We've built this system to see how far it could go. And we are there. We are, we have surpassed where it can go. And now it's a time to realize that the path of least resistance isn't always the right way to go. Or more often, it's never the right way to go, right? Like if you can challenge yourself to practice accountability and to find um, comfort in the discomfort, it is so much more rewarding because you're you're fighting for something that you're not quite aware of the potential of you know yes and and i think that you you're really keying in on this like that idea of discomfort or inconvenience is anathema to you know the american most of our kind of modern understanding of oh i want a pizza and man i you know it's it's way too difficult to go to the pizza store, go to the pizza restaurant. I want it right now. And I want it delivered immediately to my doorstep. And now, you know, everything is, is coming online that way. So I think it, this is such an important conversation to um, be able to take a step back and take a look at where things come from, what it takes to actually get it to you, and what do we actually need? to uh, sustain ourselves and to be happy in this life. Um, in your work, in your art, one of the, I see magic. I see uh, gorgeous landscapes. Um, I see almost this ethereal um, sense of being inside of this world that you're creating. And I see a lot of joy in the people, on the faces of the people that you paint inside of this landscape in this world that you live in and that you know and if it's true that uh it you know it costs a lot to bring energy and to bring groceries out to that part of the, the world to where you live and it's true that salmon make up a big part of your diet as do moose and uh caribou and traditional foods and yet you've you've got all this joy that you're painting right where does that come from? It's such a cool experience to be part of the world. <laughs> like we're truly a part of the world. We're another wild animal within the world. And we're trying to master and survive like whatever these systems are that we're navigating ourselves through. Um, you know, and I think that one of the most important things through all of this is how 
how do we, you know, if we're trying to go for like, what, what are, how do we save what we love? Like that kind of mentality with all of this and addiction. Um, the key part, what, from what my experience has been now as a mom is starting with our youth and letting our kids know from the, because by the time we're adults, it's so hard to change our habits. It's such a tough thing to do, but it's definitely a lot easier to see in other people, what they're lacking. So as a parent, your children are just forming. And so it's a lot easier to have this list of practices that we must continue on as native people. And my kids, I might, the path, again, like the path of least resistance is not my route for parenting. I am struggling the whole time and I have judgment and people sort of ridiculing my outlandish ways but I'm seeing progress and it is so fulfilling. My kids want presents for Christmas. I say that hurts mother earth. We're not doing that. I'm not going to go crazy and buy you all of this stuff, all of that packaging, all of your dolls made out of plastic, like oil, all of that stuff is extraction. Like that hurts mother earth. And they're, Oh, well, I'll ask grandma. And so the next thing is like trying to get never change. <laughs> right. And so the next thing is trying to get the adults all on board to understand that it's up to us to hold our kids accountable to what this new world is going to look like in the next 20 years. And although my kids are, you know, trying to jump me, they at least hear it. And I try to practice it. Like I definitely buy them gifts, but that is with great guilt and shame that I do that. That's my weakness. And I definitely buy a lot less gifts and things for my kids than I know that other parents do. But it's still, I know better. And I should hold myself accountable to these addictions and to say, when is enough enough? Like 10 years, 20 years ago, enough was enough. Like we are way past enough is enough. And we really need to be hard asses on ourselves and say, let's get our together so our kids aren't living in a freaking dump i mean you are uh as usual uh we're riding the same wave and uh i was just gonna go into this this bit here with you and you you kind of beat me to it it's uh, sorry <laughs> no it's fantastic it's it's a it's a natural confluence of waters here and th- this is exactly what i wanted to talk about was was your kids and uh our agreement and Go back in, going back to your article uh, that you wrote, and you wrote, this period of time will be the college master's projects for futures, future generations. It will become a guide to social justice and establish the prioritization of indigenous life ways as a critical piece for the success of modern society. So this, too, is part of the feelings that are included in the millions of acres of emotion that we have as Alaskans by being a part of this epic land. Have we lived if our children haven't tasted the hard work of gathering food? Have we lived yet if we haven't passed on the knowledge of how to gather wild food and talk to the wild animals as our ancestors have for millennia? This world in which we live is magical in a way we must feel to understand. So in your painting, that's what I got out of our agreement. Um, and you can check out by uh, painting our agreement up in our um, so show notes on the website, but uh, can you describe what your painting, our agreement looks like and, and why, why did you paint it? 
I painted it when I was pregnant and was sort of that whole epiphany that I was bringing another wasteful being to the world. (laughs) So finding that doom, but I also thrive again, like I must put things down uncomfortably for me to have a revelation that I can twist into something positive. So I need to be real with myself that humans are wasteful creatures and bringing or contributing to the population issues that we are having on the globe like I am a part of that also. And by choosing to bring new life in, like I must fully understand what I am taking on, which is a considerable amount of waste and garbage and earth destruction from the perspective of an an indigenous person, right? Like our lifestyle trying to merge into US society is completely against what we have been raised to believe for thousands of years that material possessions are not worth people and so with painting this it was first all of the doom and gloom of pebble and population and wastefulness and then to twist it into like well I'm already here and this child is growing within me how do I make the best of it and it was like we need to make an agreement with our future generations that they are going to be the caretakers of our lands and our animals, they're going to be the voice of all beings. And they're going to find that creativity and imagination to tap into like our ancestors did, because it's not, it seems that Western, the Western world really looks down on imagination as ignorance. And when people talk in metaphor and these world, these other worlds within our world, um, they don't realize that it's always like this this religion type stuff that they're talking about. But religion, as far as like Christianity, they do such a good job of grounding it more to like this humanly level. Well, as native people, like we also include our animals and the environment and everything like that. And unless we could kind of um, bring that magic, like it seems there has to be like a different word than magic. Um, Just like these mystical wonders of the universe they're there, whether it's through our religions in, as Christians or our spiritual beliefs as Native people, um, needing to bring myself and that vulnerability out there because people will shame you as an adult if you're like, I speak to the wind. <laughs> That's not a literal <laughs> thing, you know? It's not... Americans just want to make everything so literal. I am speaking to the wind, but that's also just like putting this feeling out there and opening your energy and magic. And like, we need that to thrive. And so the painting our agreement again, kind of goes into um, putting the positive twist into what I was doing as a mom and making an agreement with the environment and the fish and, letting my child in me know that they have responsibility coming into this earth. Like, and that's our agreement um, with the fish and the fish is making the handshake. Like, you know, native people, we do a lot of handshakes. It's not, we're just coming into the world of paperwork and (laughs) notarizing things. There was a lot of verbal agreements then. Um, So our verbal agreement with, the salmon um, and the salmon with us, I will nourish your future generations as long as you protect mine. So as long as these, the lands and waters that these fish are living in and recreating in are protected and pristine for them to properly 
make new generations, then in turn or in theory, our children will be fed another year, another generation, another, you know, 100 years. Like we're, there was a lot in it. I, I know it is rewarding, and but it's also not easy to raise uh, your kids off grid and teach them about traditional food and teachings and art and the land. Why do you do it? Why is it worth it? Because it's hard as F. <laughs> it's you like so, a challenge. It's so hard, and I do absolutely love a challenge. Like, my entire life has just... <laughs> Thought I was going to get through this one. <laughs> Life is not easy for anybody. <sighs> As a Native person, like, we're from rural Alaska. Um, get my heart rate down a little bit. Can watch these icebergs meditate through my mind and get me I'm, back. I'm so with you right right now. I'm seeing it. I've actually seen it up, <laughs> up there. Yeah, life is just not an easy journey for anyone. There's always, no matter what your base level is, you know, there, it's hard for everyone on some level, like whether or not you have privilege or like... It doesn't matter what the relativity relativity to the hardness is. It's it's just a complicated um, journey that we're all on. It is. This one would be easier to get through with that. Just texting it to you. I think, oh, look at a mask. Also, it does really well as a handkerchief. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, COVID. Um, God, don't do that very often. <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah, there's the challenge of getting through it. And I, it's hard to voice it, I think. <sighs> from this land position talking about political things because our people are still going through colonization and this exact subject, this development project is a prime example for modern day um, genocide. And whether you put it to like an extreme, you know, there's very non-emotional people who just say, how does that even work? And but from the artist's perspective of like metaphorically speaking, like these are legal ways of taking out native people and native beliefs by offering them and shaming them for holding on to this emotional way of living. Cause our, our way of life has so much emotion. And I think that was one of the biggest or hardest parts of um, working working in uh, in fighting against Pebble for the nonprofit Nunumtau caretakers of our land, which has now been sort of that realm is now um, maybe the equivalent to like what UTVB is now, United Tribes of Bristol Bay. Um, 
but people would we'd go to testimony and they'd be like you're too emotional that's not science <laughs> you can't you can't use that as your reason for not wanting this here are the figures this amount of dollars this amount of like fish this percent of impact this chance of um of a dam failure when we're saying emotionally any chance of a dam failure is too much for us so choosing to raise kids and the challenge that it brings is it's my way out of colonialism you know it's my and at the time it's not like i thought like how do i help our people get out of colonialism that's just like an entire subject that i'm learning about in adulthood it wasn't like we were taught that in school right we all know that christopher christopher columbus is a hero <laughs> um so bringing kids into it now like along with you know um hindsight and bringing it all to what it is now and not having words for it then maybe or even understanding what i was doing but raising good kids who understand what our environment is and what animals are what mother earth is and pridefully taking ownership of that warrior status that they're going to call their own mom out if something falls out of my pocket and they're like mom you're polluting mother earth <laughs> oh shoot pick that up we need to get that um if we don't raise kids with healthy minds then how can we save what we love because this world isn't going to end you know in our lifetime like we must continue passing these values on and ingrain it into humans in a way that they're going to be inspired to pass it on also and it's not easy we're stubborn we're stubborn little all of us humans <laughs> like we don't learn easy that's for sure well you inspire me and um you know we're we're in this time that is hard uh every generation faces big challenges we are facing a lot of them right now uh existential challenges some would argue i think most would at this point um and they feel these challenges feel monumental and amplified by covid and feeling you know kind of isolated and not connected but still i i feel I feel hope and I feel inspired when I'm connected to you like we are right now. Um, what, where, where do you find hope? Where, what gives you fuel um, when the days are hard? Hmm. Blue sky sure helps. <laughs> sure enough. Um, yeah, it's always finding, finding that purpose. Like what is my purpose in life? And COVID definitely pushes that question to a lot of hearts right i just think that there have been so many people who have struggled with what is my purpose when when economy shuts down when um when our business sector 
is shut down, what is our purpose? You know, we're all being sort of blindsided by industry and kind of going into every day thinking that our purpose is to just do the work that the corporations need us to do to spin spin those dollar figures. And once we realize that that's actually a pretty fragile system and it's sort of unrealistic and it's not self-sustainable, um, what are we doing? What are we doing with ourselves and how fulfilled are we when we're not dependent on this capitalist mentality and economy? What are the alternative economies of our world? Well, one, one that is very undervalued is like the emotional economy. I don't know what that would be, spiritual economy, just what worth and value do we have on our emotional well-being and who are we when we can't depend on the cash economy what are we doing there's so much self-improvement going on in this covid this covid year seeing people just really work through it and unpack it and and find you know black lives matter um missing and murdered indigenous women mm-hmm. like we matter that's what matters when the cash economy is completely falling into the hole like our people matter and our well-being matters and we need to have each other's back otherwise you know we have chaos this is such an inspiring conversation i'm so glad we got to connect today um and we are approaching the end of it for for now um, I got kind of a rapid fire little thing, three parts to this. It's sort of the similar theme. You'll get it. The first part is, okay, your house is on fire. So of course you get your loved ones out first, but in addition to them, what's the one physical thing you save from the fire? Let it burn. <laughs> wow. Going all in. Let's just cleanse. How much of that do we need? Um, I don't know. Once my kids are out, really, I'm just happy that we're alive. I can't say that there's anything in there that would be worth more than our hearts and minds. Let's start fresh. Yeah, that pretty much wraps up the rest of this, except um, maybe you've got a little addendum. Um, So let's now call it your spiritual house. What are the two most important things about your life that you take with you? Um. Gratitude is something that I have to practice every day again. Like, you know, life in rural Alaska is not easy. And the way to get through it is by spinning it and always being thankful. Like, no matter what. Um, the next thing is um, my sense of humor. So good. It's so true. Let's take some laughter with all of that. Hell yes. It's going down. I want to laugh. I want That's to right. Laugh. And we do. Well, lastly, what's the one thing you leave behind in the house to burn down? Um, fear. Let's get that out. Let's get that out. Abayu, I am so grateful to be your friend. Thank you for this time together. And uh, we're going to continue sometime down the line. And I can't wait to see you back in Bristol Bay again soon. And uh, for those of you who want to follow Abayek's work, how do they find you? 
You could check me out on Instagram. Um, I've changed the spelling of my name more recently, right? And so I'm still adapting. On Instagram, it's a Bayuk, A-P-A-Y-U-Q. And then my webs. ah, is it a Bayuk art? I think it's just a Bayuk. <laughs> and then also my website, abayuk.com, A-P-A-Y-U-Q.com. And there you can see my entire portfolio. So grateful for you. Thank you for being our very first guest on the Save What You Love podcast. Ah, you're welcome. I didn't think you were going to break me this time. I came in, I was like, no tears this time. I got it. (laughs) But you got me. No one escapes. Not yet. But the (laughs) next time, (laughs) I'm up for a challenge. Next time, we're going to be clear voice. Feel free to write that out and you could read it like I had sent you an email. You are on. I will always take up the challenge because I like challenges too. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. All right. Peace. Peace. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, You can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land waters, and other inhabitants today.